Hello, everybody. Looks like most of you have uh, managed to find your way here. How are you enjoying things so far? That's right. Yeah, that bad. Now, how are you enjoying it so far? Good? Yeah. Great. Well, we're going to try and um, keep things interesting over the next hour for you. Just to remind you what the hell this is, this is part of, actually part of the MC408 um, series, so, you know, your theories and concepts. And the idea is that you've had your big theory concept lecture on a theme, and with these talks, these media agenda talks, which are organised by Polis, the idea is we bring in somebody who actually practices what we preach, if you like. Somebody who has to either make a living or you know, make their way in the world, uh, putting into practice some of the ideas and concepts and so on that we talk about in our seminars and our lectures. And we try and get different people each week. They have a sort of vague correlation with the themes, but it's not supposed to be precise. And it's very much an opportunity for you not just to hear from uh, these people, but uh, to talk to them back as well. So as you're listening, please, um, if you have things that occur to you, there's questions that occur to you, then all the speakers are very much uh, willing and keen to be engaged with you. So you know, make a note and come back with your devastating uh, question at the end. Or even halfway through. Who knows? Um, I'm very pleased to uh, introduce Ben Hammersley tonight. Ben is somebody who uh, I've sort of crossed paths with over the years in very sort of unlikely places. We were just trying to work out the last time. The time before last, the last I saw of Ben was across a room in DC. Aretha Franklin was singing with Colin Powell on a stage. And that was a very strange evening. Um, But the last time I saw Ben was at a... um, appropriately very secret Chatham House Rules uh, seminar talking about intelligence and surveillance uh, in the the digital age. Ben is a protean figure. He's somebody who has been a technologist, a journalist. He works in universities. He works with industry sometimes and with public bodies, always around the kind of digital space, around new technologies and what they mean for us as people, what they mean for us as a society, as well as what they might mean, uh, perhaps commercially, say. Ben is going to take you through um, his particular sort of vision of why this matters. And I think that's really important um, that we start off uh, with somebody who has his own personal vision of stuff, but is very much aware that we perhaps have quite a distorted sense of what the digital is and what it does. So Ben's going to talk to you, basically, and, uh, you know, you can respond. So please give a warm welcome to Ben Hamslick. I'm not sure that this microphone works. Does this work? Yeah. Oh, in that case. Sorry, Charlie. Um, he looks amazing in a tuxedo, by the way. That evening in D.C. was a thing. Um, so, uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, I have... Um, I'm very honoured to be here at LSE. I, I, I'm, slightly, I'm always slightly scared when I come here. I've lectured here a couple of times, and it, 
apart from the fact that the rake on this room is really very terrifying, it's basically like I'm, you're falling in on me. Um, but I'm very, I'm very honoured to be here because you, you're all doing things that, something that I didn't do, which is go to school. Uh, well, you know, it's the beginning of the term, right? Give yourself a chance. Um, I, I actually did... I went to SOAS, uh, but I went to SOAS for, for uh, two terms. And in the Easter term... In the Easter holidays, I, w- I got work experience at Associated Press Television, which is the uh, TV news agency, one of the two big TV news agencies in the world. And, and at the end of the three weeks of work experience, the head of news there said, well, if you come back on Monday, we'll give you some money. And um, I deferred my exams, and uh, whatever it is, 20 years later, I haven't gone back to take them. So <laughs> I may well, may well have been kicked out of SARS. Um, and since then, as I said, I've had this extraordinarily... Um, random career, uh, everything from being uh, the first technology uh, internet reporter for the, for the Times and being a, a war correspondent in Afghanistan and Beirut and the Philippines and various places like that, Iran, um, going undercover in, in Burma and things, and then being the deputy editor of Wired. I just finished, a, I tweeted it today, the trailer for a TV series I just made for the BBC on cybercrime. And then in the middle of all of that sort of thing, I was a a technologist, and I also just finished sitting on the European um, Commission's, what's called a high-level group on media freedom, which is the four of us. It was myself, the ex-president of Latvia, the ex-minister of justice of Germany, and the ex-advocate general for the European Court. I mean, spot the the odd one out. Um, The four of us doing a big report on the future of media and media freedom across uh, the European Union. The reason I'm telling you all of this is so hopefully you'll have some form of questions because what I'm about to tell you probably mean nothing at all. Um, does anybody have any questions? <laughs> so, uh, the title of this talk I said was, was uh, Mainstream Media is, is Meaningless Nostalgia. And the reason I say that is because I've noticed over the past few years that many courses are specifically at this sort of level with, with young people like yourselves is really, it talks about the media in a way that your lecturers remember the media being. Uh, This is a very painful time for people in the media industry. It's been a painful time for maybe the past 15 or 20 years. The media has been chased down the street by the tortoise of the internet and has slowly been caught by, oh no, the internet is coming, we must do something. Oh, we haven't been. (laughs) That's basically what's happened over the past 15 years. And, and And so... you end up with an awful lot of people who come here and tell you, talk to you about media, for example, who will really actually be talking about the media of their youth and not the media of today. Uh, as an example of that, um, does anybody here know who the biggest video star in the world is? 85 million views of her most watched video. No, no. Oprah Winfrey? It's a woman called Disney Collector BR. Nobody knows her real name. She's on YouTube, if you're ever interested in this. Um, Disney Collector. She's very, very good. Uh, Seems to be somebody from South America. Her accent is quite soft. You never see her face. You only see her hands. She has a very good manicure. Very nice manicure. And, um, And her videos, she makes maybe three or four a day. Her videos are of her unboxing uh, toys. It's a close-up of her going there and taking toys out of boxes. And she's talking in a very soft, breathy voice. I'm not going to do the, the accent, but, you know, she talks, and she says, you know, here we are, 
with the with the Angry Birds Play-Doh set, and I'm going to take the top off it. Anyway, each one of those videos gets around about between 40 and 85 million views. Um, it turns out that if you're four years old, this stuff is crack. It's it's it, like it's it's the thing, right? Um, I, I had a, a, a baby. Well, my wife had a baby daughter four four weeks and two days ago, and um, I know. <laughs> Bless. I'll show you pictures if you like. Um, and and and. One of the big debates that we have, uh, or that we're starting to have, is, is what is our policy around screens and, and young Ripley, my, my daughter? Uh, because one of the big things with parenting is whether or not you give them uh, dead tree screens, which are a little bit they're sort of broken, they don't do anything, or do you give them real screens, which have things moving around them? And it turns out that above a certain age, if you give them an iPhone or an iPad or something, they will almost by instinct, be able to get onto YouTube, log onto YouTube, and, and go to Disney Collector and watch thousands of these videos in the room. <laughs> Turns out that what, that's what happens. Now, there are many, many, many of these examples. You know, there's, there's everybody from PewDiePie, for example, who's a, a young Scandinavian guy who talks about video games. And again, each one of his videos gets about 25 uh, million views or so. There are uh, 10 or so multi-million a week view uh, makeup bloggers, for example. Uh, there are the equivalent ones for, for uh, DIY and for many things. There are lots and lots and lots of people on YouTube who get tens of, if not hundreds of millions of viewers a year. Which is awesome because that level of media, that enormous spread, that enormous cultural impact of those people is basically unremarked by the average media lecturer. The average person who will stand in front of you on this stage and talk to you about the media will have had no clue whatsoever. They will never have heard of these people. They certainly won't be watching them. Probably not, not that much into Disney toys in the first instance. But also, their idea of what media is, is newspapers radio, television, and anything that a newspaper company puts out in the form of a digital product, which is still referred to as a newspaper because, oh, God, the world is changing, and please stop it. So let's think about what newspapers were, because once you understand what newspapers were, then the rest of your year will make a lot more sense because you can, you can sort of empathise with these people. In the UK, the most popular newspaper in the history of, uh, of the nation was the News of the World in 1951. It had 8 million subscribers. Since the 1950s, newspaper subscriptions have been falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. And since the advent of the internet and the, and the web specifically, they have really plummeted. But nonetheless, 50s and 60s and 70s was really the heyday of the newspapers. And we have to think what were newspapers? What was the point of a newspaper? What is the point of media? Now, uh, people in this room and, and, and in the surrounding you know, quarter mile will say the point of a newspaper is for news. <laughs> I must understand what is happening in the world. And so, of course, everybody here, when they, you know, they, they wake up in the morning and after you've checked Twitter, you go and, you, know, you check all of the front pages of all of the newspapers and, 
and you read The Economist from the back to the front, as is traditional, and you do all of these things, and you're very much tied into what into news. But actually, if you look at newspaper reading habits, what you'll find is that most people didn't read the newspapers for the news. In fact, the news was kind of the dull thing at the beginning of the paper. The vast majority of newspapers in the UK that were consumed were local newspapers. And the local newspapers, the news at the front was really what the local council was doing, what the local mayor was doing, and that, by, almost by definition, was incredibly boring. The most important thing of the local newspaper was the stuff at the back. It was what was on at the local cinema. It was the TV listings. In the olden days, there weren't that many channels, so it was possible to print on a double-page spread everything that was on television that evening. And this was incredibly important if you were going to plan your life. <laughs> when is Top of the Pops on? Seven o'clock. Right? Yeah, it's very important. Cinema, theatre. It was all the small ads. It's where you found your first job. It's where you found your first flat. It's probably where your birth was announced. It's probably where your death was announced. It's where you found your... Holidays, it's where you found your first car. It's where your school sports day results were announced. It's, when, it's where the um, fact that the school was going to be closed the next day because of snow was announced. It was, your entire life was within those pages. The first seven or eight pages would be local news. Nobody would care. The important stuff was in the back. And that's why newspapers sold a lot, because they were deeply important to the rest of your life. Then the internet comes along, and the web comes along, and every single one of those additional services migrates to the web. Job advertising goes to the web. Classified ads, you know, that's eBay, it's Craigslist, right? Um, at the same time, television gets far too complicated. There's no way on God's earth that you could do a TV listing page. I was working at The Guardian uh, when it redesigned into its current format, which was, what, eight, nine years ago, something like that? And that was the last time they tried to redesign the TV listings page to get all of the evening's television on. And rapidly stopped doing it because it rapidly became impossible. Cinema listings and all of these other things you would find were migrated on online. And so suddenly you ended up with local and national newspapers which had nothing to do other than tell you what the news was. And it turns out nobody gives a shit. Nobody actually cares about the news. Or certainly don't care enough to pay the 50p a day or whatever it is. People bought newspapers because they were incredibly important to the rest of their lives. When I was growing up in, um, in Leicester, which is in the, you know, in the middle of England, uh, when I was 18 in 1994, you can do the maths, uh, Lester Mercury, uh, the Lester Mercury to the local paper sold 122,000 copies. That's basically one copy uh, for every three people who lived there. So basically it went to every single household. Since then it's dropped quite radically because there's no real reason for it to exist anymore other than to tell the local sports and local politics news. It's kind of dull. So you've had this transition from a time when newspapers actually were incredibly important in people's lives, but not for the news, really, to a time now where all of those bits that are important in people's lives are being taken up by other services. 
mostly online services. And again, the news still doesn't really matter for most people. You guys are really different. No. Master's students at LSE, absolutely, news is really important. The normals outside, the normals don't care. Sorry. Now, meanwhile, we found ourselves living in an incredibly weird world. Um, apart from the sort of TV series and things, now most of the things I do are uh, what's called futurism, which is where I, uh, I, I live in the future and I come back and tell everybody about it. Um, PowerPoint has been made illegal, by the way. Just so you know. Um, one of the things that we found since, that, since the 60s is that since the 60s, since the, the heyday of local papers, we've been living under a thing called Moore's Law. Who has, uh, has heard of or is fully cognizant of Moore's Law? Right. Four people. Okay. Thank you. The Moore's Law is the most important thing to know about the modern world. Okay? Pens out. In about 1962, there was a guy called Gordon Moore. He was the founder of Intel. Intel, people who make the microchips, right? And he looked at all of the chips that they were making. He was looking at the sales brochures and stuff, and he noticed a really interesting pattern. He noticed that roughly every 12 to 18 months, for the same amount of money, the number of components on a microchip would double. And he wrote this as a memo inside Intel, and he sent it off to his engineers, and they went, Gordon, that's very good, very good boss, congratulations, right? And file that. And then about 10 years later, in the early 70s, they dug it out, and they looked at it again, and they found that this trend was true, that roughly every 12 to 18 months, for the same cost, the number of components on an integrated circuit would double. And it was true in the 70s, and it was true again in the 80s, and it was true in the 90s, and it's true today, and we think it will continue to be true until about 2050. The rule of thumb is, roughly speaking, every 12 to 18 months, for the same cost, computing power doubles. This has been true since the 60s, and it's true today, and it's the only time in human existence that this has ever been true. That the capability of the dominant technology of the age doubles in power every year. It's an exponential curve. This has never happened before. If you think about it, um, you know, swords didn't get twice as sharp every year. Right? Horses didn't get twice as horsey every year. Right? Plows didn't get twice as ploughy. Yeah, thank you. Every, every year. Right? Now, why is this? Well, we use digital technologies to, div to design new digital technologies. I mean, you don't use a sword to make another sword. All right, you use another horse to make another horse, right? That's true. But, but after a while, right, it stops getting better. It stops getting better. Whereas computing technology, it turns out, does double in power every year. You know this as a matter of, of, matter of fact. It's why every, rough, you know, every September or so, Steve Jobs, by him or before, and now Tim Cook, will get up on stage and instantly make the phone in your pocket shit. Right? <laughs> Moore's Law in action. And Moore's Law, I will put it to you, is the defining paradigm for your life. And possibly your parents' lives, but certainly for your life. It's incredibly important to understand the implications of Moore's Law. 
because it is the, as I say, the fundamental thing that is driving everything that you will do and have done and will do for the rest of your lives. There are a couple of interesting things about Moore's Law, just as a, as a side note. Um, the first one is, if you were doing, if you decide after this, you decide to go into maths, God knows why, right? But say, say you want to go and do a maths PhD, or you know people who are about to do a maths PhD, here's the thing. If you pick a topic that's going to take five years' worth of computation, bear with me on this, five years' worth of sums, okay, you would be better off spending the first year drunk on a beach. Because if you wait, so if you've got computing power to do five years worth of sums today, take you five years. If you go to the beach for a year, wander back after a year, buy the computing equipment that's available then, it'll be twice as powerful, which will take two and a half years to do your sum, which means one year on the beach plus two and a half years is three and a half years, as opposed to five years if you'd started today. Oh yeah. The second thing, this is an interesting paradox, that's an interesting paradox. The second thing is that anything that you see in technology which is a little bit rubbish today and yet exists will be inevitably amazing very soon. And more than likely, if it is a rival to your business or a rival to the thing you're interested in, it will destroy that thing very soon. The history of the past decade or so is filled with companies that have not understood this. Uh, Kodak is a good example. In the olden days, when you took pictures, you used to take them on a, a chemical-filled piece of plastic strip that was called, cam- you know this, right? <laughs> camera film, right? Kodak used to make camera film. They made Kodachrome, which is the most beautiful camera film ever made. It's absolutely beautiful. It takes, takes gorgeous, gorgeous pictures. It has a particular quality to the light that it captures. And in the 1970s, Kodak invented digital photography. And the original digital cameras were um, sort of 0.1 megapixel cameras. They took pictures that looked like chessboards. They were rubbish. And at the same time, Kodak was making Kodachrome, which is the most beautiful thing ever. And so the Kodak people, not understanding Moore's law, said, ah, digital photography is rubbish. We'll just keep using this chemically stuff over here. The day that Kodak went horribly bankrupt, that same week, Instagram, which, as you'll remember, is an iPhone app which takes pictures that then tints them to look like Kodachrome, which at the time had nine employees, was sold for $850 million. Because Kodak had forgotten that their challenge wasn't, you know, the science of film or photography. Their challenge was Moore's Law. That, that something had been made that was dependent on digital equipment, and that digital equipment would double in capability every year until it was so good it would kill you. Inevitably. So now we find ourselves in a really interesting position. That we're starting, at this last year, this year, and over the next few years, we are starting to reach a point where the technologies driven by Moore's Law have reached a tipping point that will really change the way we think about media and so on. 
Everybody has a phone like this, right? Yeah? So, we know some really interesting things about smartphones now. Uh, the first thing that we know is that everybody here has dedicated at least a few percent of their brain to monitoring their smartphone at all times. Every single person in this room has got a little voice in the back of their head going, is it ringing? Is it ringing? Is it ringing? <laughs> I said it's silent, right? I said it's silent. Gee, God, I hope I said it's silent. Is it ringing? Please don't ring. Should I check Twitter? Can I check Twitter? Is there a hashtag? There's a hashtag? <laughs> Shit. Um, should, I, should, I be t- should I be tweeting this? It's like, what, what? Is it ringing? Is it ringing? We know this, right? There have been lots of medical experiments. Uh, genuinely, there have been some studies. Harvard, you know, I mean, it's a dubious university, but they did a study anyway. And they found that um, if you'd owned a smartphone for more than a year, 45% of you, so that's pretty much, let's say 45, sorry, try again, 95% of you, so everybody but that lot, right, <laughs> just say, um, will have, in the last month, felt your phone vibrating in your pocket when it wasn't. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. It's called a phantom vibration. <laughs> and what that is, is the bit of brain that you have in, your, in the back of your head that is constantly going, is it ring? Is it ring? Is it ring? Is it ring? It's that bit of brain just going wrong. You know, it's deja vu type of thing. And so the bit that's going, is it ringing? Is it ringing? Is it ringing? Oh, fuck, it's ringing. It's ringing. It's ringing. It's ringing. It's ringing. It's ringing. It's not ringing. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that bit, right? 45%. This is what the 45 bit. So that's basically everybody from... That's like 45% of you will have felt your phone ringing in your pocket when you were holding it in your hand. <laughs> so what does this go to show? Well, it goes to show, apart from the fact that most people are brain damaged by their phone. <laughs> but it goes to show that these things have become incredibly intimate. I mean, think about it, right? You're, never, you're probably never more than a metre away from your phone ever. In your pocket or your bag right now. It's sat on the little table next to your bed when you're asleep. It's on the little shelf in your bathroom when you're in the shower. Unless... <laughs> Right? You know? And it, it's never away from you. It's, it's your robot brain. You carry it around with you. You might as well be cyborgs, right? I mean, pretty much everybody here is a cyborg because not only do you have your robot brain with you at all times, but you've also given it things to remember so you don't have to. The traditional thing for old people like myself to tell you about now is that in the olden days, people would remember phone numbers as if there was some form of moral good in remembering long strings of numbers. (laughs) Anybody who ever tells you that is an idiot, right? But it's true in that nobody here remembers more than three phone numbers, probably. You remember your own. You might remember, say, a a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and you probably remember your own when you were 10 years old. That's it. Because your robot brain does it for you. So these things are incredibly intimate, incredibly important. So we now face this really interesting situation, which is that the media that we consume no longer comes from this hallowed format of newspapers and and talk radio and and so on, this almost ritualized uh, consensual consensual group experience of the same newspapers or the same TV shows or something. 
but instead comes to you via mobile devices, which are themselves incredibly intimate to you. And because of that intimacy, I mean, the intimacy is, is genuinely not something to be underestimated. If I was to come out into the audience and take somebody's laptop from them, you might be a little bit upset. If I was to come out in the audience and take their phone from them, they would freak out. <laughs> right? You know, it'd be like, oh, somebody's taken my laptop. I can claim insurance and get a new MacBook. Yes. <laughs> somebody's taken my phone? Fuck. Right? It's like being lobotomized, right? So, because of that, media now is ever more important, much more important and much more entwined with our lives than it was in the golden age of the newspaper. It's just it's entwined with our lives through these devices. Now, what does that mean as far as media is concerned? No idea. No idea. If I did, me and a load of you guys will be somewhere in San Francisco making billions of pounds, right? We have no real idea. That's the challenge for the next few years. Because we really don't as yet know what it means to have a news media through these incredibly intimate and personal devices. The first people to work that out properly will be super rich and super powerful and super important. So, you know, any ideas? No? But, and here's where we... Uh, this is where we get to the, my final point before we get to questions, so think up some good ones. Moore's Law doesn't stop. There are some uh, thoughts physically that it might reach a limit sometime around 2040, 2050 for various subatomic reasons. But the difference in computing power between now, between now and then is also so massive that we can't possibly imagine what it'll be like to have compute the computing we'll have in 2040. So it's, it's not even worth thinking about those physical top limits because we're going to go through some really weird shit between now and then. So, nevertheless, Moore's Law doesn't really stop. And we're now getting to a point where not only are these devices incredi so incredibly powerful that they become deeply intimate parts of our psyche... Um, just as, as, as an aside, um, if, you, if anybody here has seen the film uh, Star, uh, Superman 3, uh, which is the Richard Pryor one, uh, by far the most superior of the early Supermans, uh, there is in that a Cray 2 supercomputer, the sexiest of all 1970s supercomputers. It's the round one with the sofa built into it, if you've ever seen one of these. I would totally look it up, Cray 2, just Google image it now, because it it's like... You want one in your house, basically. But at the time, in the late 70s, it was the most powerful computer in the history of the universe. Right? Um, the iPhone 5S, the now shit iPhone, um, is three times as powerful as the Cray 2 supercomputer. If I was to go back in time in the LSC time machine to, the to 1978 with one of these, I would be a wizard. <laughs> right? It's really important that you understand that doubling of power is so, so powerful. But anyway, most important thing to understand here is that Moore's Law continues, and we run a very interesting social phenomenon about to happen. 
And that interesting social phenomenon is that people my age, I'm 38, people my age, we grew up watching television news of um, factories being closed because robots were coming in. Specifically car plants in, in, in Derby and Birmingham and places like that. And, and what would happen is you'd have all of these guys who'd been working in car factories and they were welders or they were, you know, they were fitters or whatever and they would, they would make cars and then the Japanese would come along and they would have these amazing robots and the remote robots could, could make perfect cars 24 hours a day, you know, 500 a second. These cars would be like exploding out the front of the, out front of the factory. And, and this, was, this was amazing. And my parents would, tell, would sort of sit me in front of the TV, in front of the news of industrial decline of the Midlands, and go, you know, there you are, son. Watch that. Go to fucking university, right? <laughs> Don't become a car mechanic because the robots are going to take your job. And we, in the 80s, we went through, the 80s and 90s, we went through this deindustrialization of the UK where IT took the role of, of manual labor. But Moore's law continued doubling and doubling of capability. And what we have now is a really fascinating situation, which is that all of those people, and specifically the people I went to university with who went on to do law and accountancy and medicine, those professions that you may have been told yourselves to go and do, because they were the ones where you get a definite guaranteed job and all that sort of stuff and bring honor to your families. <laughs> well, it turns out that... Um, uh, turns out the computers are really, really good at those things. Because law and accountancy and medicine, um, at its very fundamental level, is like a big flowchart. I mean, think about medicine, right? It's really just a really big flowchart. It starts at the top, you know, is patient alive or dead? Dead. Stop. <laughs> Alive. Well done. Continue. Right, you know. Almost dead, nearly dead. Right. And you just continue your way down until you get to the bottom. Patient is, is well again. Huh? More or less. Turns out that if you make a profession into a big flowchart, then computers can do it really well. And especially computers that have been made so powerful by the onward thrust of Moore's Law. And so uh, a couple of years ago, the IBM have a supercomputer they call Watson. And uh, Watson, about three years ago, was, put, was a contestant on the American game show Jeopardy. You may have seen it. It was actually quite good. It won for quite a few weeks. Artificial intelligence playing a game show. Once they made their prize money and everything, the IBM researchers took Watson back in. And, of course, every year it's doubling in power. And they start feeding it full of documents. And over the past few years, they've been feeding it medical journals. And the last time they spoke about this, which was about a year and a half ago, they said that Watson was now roughly 60% accurate with medical diagnoses. That's a year and a half ago. So just by Moore's law, we know that it's twice as powerful. Now, whether that means it's twice as good, who knows? Maybe it's just twice as fast, it being slightly wrong, whatever. But the upshot of this is, almost inevitably, at the very basic levels of medicine and lawyering and accountancy, your iPhone 15 will have the 99 cent app which replaces somebody who you're in halls with at the moment who's doing medical school. <laughs> and so we need to look at not only the intimacy of these devices but the social implications of computing power which is reaching this tipping point this year really 
where it's capable of doing stuff that only humans could have done before. Those of you who want to be journalists, there are any, should not feel particularly smug about this. There's a company uh, in the States called Narrative Science. Narrative Science have a lot of artificial intelligences that are writing the news. Um, I think it's Associated Press. Pretty much all of their financial news coverage is written by a robot now. Has been for about a year. Nobody has noticed. We are now living in a world, not a nice, nice and simple world where you would get your evening paper and look to see what was on at the cinema and say, ah, Back to the Future 2, marvellous, I should go and see it. But instead, we are living in a world where everybody has a supercomputer in their pockets, which is a in deeply intimate part of their own psyche. And where you are coexisting in your workplace, or at least will do by the time you've graduated and, and got into work, you will be coexisting in your workplace with artificial intelligences that are as good, if not better, at your job than you are. What that means for the media and for the work that you'll be doing, we really don't know. And in many ways, it is up to you guys to actually define that, to stick, put the stake in the ground and say, this is what it means. We're going to go this way. But between now and then, you're going to have an awful lot of people who stand up here and, and weep at you about the state of the media, as if the media that they had 20 years ago was awesome, and that we should rebuild the old on the ruins of the new. Those people are wrong but they're scared, and they're scared for a very good reason. We really just don't know what this all means. And because I don't know what it means, I'm going to stop now. Does anybody have any questions? Thank you very much. <laughs>